welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I am David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yeah. How you doing? A little down in the dumps, but uh, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get through it. We sure will, buddy. Let's keep, let's keep this brief. Yeah, uh, we'll see what we can do. Do we have any podcast business today? Uh, yeah. Okay. A couple things. First Tweak, off. Tweaked, tweakedaudio.com yeah. slash pretension. Yeah. That's where you get your awesome earbuds for uh, one third off mm-hmm. and no shipping. That's right. It's well, no, 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 no. It w- they will be shipped, it's, <laughs> but it's free. You don't have to go pick them up. Right. <laughs> Thank so, you for clarifying. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, we would definitely uh, recommend checking out tweakedaudio.com slash pretension and looking at the various uh, 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 styles and models and colors mm-hmm. of uh, earbuds they have, all of which come highly recommended from now, uh, what, uh, Pretension. Like, what quality would you say? Like, what level? I'm going to say professional quality. Okay, all yeah. right. You, okay. You're not going to find this kind of quality at uh, Target. Okay, fair enough. Or maybe you will, but you're going to spend, you know, upwards of 60, 70 bucks. I'm trying to think what amateur quality would count as. Just Oh, I, you want to listen to uh, the <laughs> Sony ones that I still have in my, in my bag from before I got my tweakedaudio.com ones? Um, so, yeah, that's, uh, that's the first thing. Like, We've got to keep this going. Uh, and listeners, now, I'm, will... I'm sure Sony makes good ones, but uh... yeah, yeah, not the ones. Yeah, the, but the twelve dollar these... ones I got from Walgreens and, uh, several months yeah. ago before I got my tweaked. And uh, yeah, it, uh, it, if Sony does make earbuds as good as the tweakedaudio.com earbuds, they're way more expensive. I'd say that's about right. Tweakedaudio.com/slash/pretension, you get uh, it, it'd be a steal at twice the price. If you go to Sony.com/slash/pretension, you don't get thirty three percent off. You only get like I don't know, like twenty percent off. But like. <laughs> That's not true. That's not true. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. So, um, so that's the first thing. Second thing, sleep debt. Talked about it uh, last couple of weeks. Going to talk about it for another couple of weeks. Um, and I just talked. I just spoke with uh, the director Patrick, who's actually going to be sending us uh, some copies. And uh, Ooh. I didn't like that at all. <laughs> um, but uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully, we enjoy it. I guess you'll know next week, um, <laughs> provided we get it, uh, get them in time for next week. So. Um, but yeah, I will read this once again. Sleep debt is a low-budget feature in the vein of classic Twilight Zone episodes. When it is when a disturbed man is visited by vivid dreams, which turn out to be another person's consciousness, he must discover his connection with the stranger before it is too late for them both. Sleep debt is available online through Amazon.com. You can find more information at sleepdebtmovie.com. All right. So, and I think that is all for the time being. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh, you it. know what? And we want to thank Dallas and Patrick. Absolutely. And uh, is that what you were going to say? Uh, no, I was going to say a different thing, which I've forgotten. Got it? Okay, okay. it's back. Uh, but yes, uh, Dallas and Patrick. And so you can find the movie entrance. Uh, by the time this goes up, you can find it uh, on, demand, yeah. on demand. And we highly recommend. And uh, there will be. We found out just today, I think, or mm-hmm. they found. They might have found out before, but mm-hmm. I found out from Dallas today. That there will be a DVD release. Yes, details we'll, to follow. We'll some be getting point. some of those too. Apparently. Damn right. <laughs> yeah. um, I offered it's to do a. Sweet gig. I offered to do a commentary for that uh, <laughs> for that DVD, and you know I what? guess they didn't take me up on it. Um, I want to address something. Okay. I listen to other podcasts. I listen to your film spottings. I listen to your Criterion cast. That's not my Criterion cast. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I am sick to death of hearing these people thank the listeners for some gift they sent them oh okay our p.o box is on the website yeah 
It, it is easy to find out how to send us something. I am sick of not getting presents from listeners. Oh, I see. Okay. Were I'm, you just saying this is a sweet gig and then you then you change yeah, your tone completely? Th- no, that's what made me think of it. All right. It's a sweet gig, it could be sweeter. That's true. I do listen to like Never Not Funny and uh, yeah, it's not specific to, to film podcasting. Yeah, yeah. I listen to Never Not Funny, I listen to 40-Year-Old boy. boy. People send them stuff all the time. Send us things. Yeah. We are going to get so many rabbit parts uh, because <laughs> of our tone right now. But, um, but yes, uh, and, and people have sent us, by the way, people have sent us their movie to review, which uh, I think we... Uh, uh, pretty much always have right yeah not something i like to say on the podcast because i don't want well okay I don't want to invite any movie how's about this if you have a movie that has like a website and a way for people to purchase it it's not just <laughs> something you made with your jackass friends yeah then, then by all means we send it or someone we'll get to it or, or yeah we we or someone who writes for the site will review it indeed so um i did want to uh say a quick thing um I don't think anyone will care, and therein lay the the issue. Um, we will be uh, dispensing with the Battleship Pretension Forum. Um, right. It was going uh, pretty well for a while, but it's dried up a little bit, um, and eh, it's getting embarrassing. <laughs> so, I don't <laughs> yeah. know if I'd go that far, but it is one of those things. Like we wanted to, we first conceived of having a forum uh, with the old website. Actually, I think the old, old website. So it's it, it has remained in some form, form uh-huh. uh, for a while. Uh, but now that we've got the site that we have and the blog posts that we have, mm-hmm. uh, which allow comments and people can respond to those. Yeah, and yeah. As sh- you know, as shown by our number 97 Mel Gibson uh, dir- uh, best director's entry. Which has pe- how many comments? Uh I'm going to say 5,000 at this point. It's not about, it's not that many, but... But it is over 100, I think. I think about that, yeah. Yeah. And um, also, your review of The Land of Blood and Honey has about 40. That's a different, that's a whole different thing. <laughs> uh, yeah, man. That, if you, hey, listener, if you want to uh, in, have a good time, head on over, read, you don't have to read my review of The Land of Blood and Honey, directed by Angelina Jolie, but you can uh, scroll down, read those comments, it's written in broken English, and uh, boy, oh boy, that's a lot of fun yeah. slash horrifying. Yeah, it's a it's a it's an interesting debate. Uh, <laughs> that's the word for it. Yeah, uh, but if, I mean, if you want to have fun on the internet, you go to battleshipretention.com. dot com. No matter what, yeah, yeah, no matter what. Uh, com- come for the land of blood and honey. Stay for everything else. That's yeah. what I say. But except for the forum, because uh, I think people now are content to just converse with each other in comment sections of, of blog posts and that sort of thing. Yeah. So, uh, so probably in the next week or so, we are going to do away with the forum. Just want to let everybody know. So, um, I think that is it as far as podcast business. Now, David. Yeah, I felt like there was something else, but I think. That's oh, okay. It. Well, uh, if you think of it, uh, interrupt oh, me. Yeah, we've got more videos coming. We, uh, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's worth, they won't be up for about a week after. Well, when this when this goes up, it'll be oh, you're tomorrow. Right. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. So yeah, when this goes up, probably by the time you're listening to it, our next video is up, and that'll be on the website and on YouTube. So please watch it. Tell your friends to watch yeah. it, and uh, tell people who aren't your friends to watch it. And I'll go ahead. Yeah. Oh wait. Yeah. All right. I, um, I don't care if they're. I don't care who knows who. It doesn't make no never mind it. to me. Yeah. But uh, and I'll, we can go ahead and say what the video will be. Right. We know what the first one is going to be. Uh, it's a review of Tim Burton, 
Tim Barton? No, Tim Burton's Dark Shadows. Yes. Or it's not it's not Tim it's not Tim, Tim Barton's, Barton's Dark, Dark Shadows. <laughs> okay, I want to make sure it's Tim Burton's Dark Shadows. Yeah. And then a uh, a fun discussion about a TV series turned into movies with uh the king of TV himself, Paul Goebel. Absolutely. And the Paul Goebel show podcast. And it was it was a lot of fun. Uh, a lot of fun. See, now I'm doing it. Yeah. Um yeah, what did we think of Dark Shadows? Did we love it? Only one way to find out. Look yeah. at that video. <laughs> I'm sure you could probably guess what our response was. But, hey, only one way to find out that you're, if your guess was correct or not. So, um, okay. With all that out of the way, um, I will say uh, for the top of the show discussion. Uh, so, and we've talked about this before, is that the other day I was, I was feeling like despair. David, I don't uh, you know, I'll, uh, let me finish. Oh. I don't mean existential despair, just that we all feel it. Did you point. read my review of the French film police? Uh, Did that send you into a, no, no, it was before then. Oh. It was before that. That's a good review though. Oh, um, the, uh, what is that? Oh, that's you. Okay. Oh, sorry. sorry. Playing um, with the pen. Playing with the pen folks. Uh, sorry. I thought my cat was, uh, had a hold of something somewhere. <laughs> um, no, what it was is that uh, I, I just felt like I, I, I don't see enough movies. Um, yeah. And I, so I was looking at my schedule, because I work from home, and I basically set my own schedule. Now, I still work a full, a full week's worth of work, yeah. but I also have prior obligations, uh, some of them church-related, some of them personal. Um, and so my week fills up, but I, as I was looking, I was just like, where does my time go? I need. Yeah. I suddenly realize I need to be much more purposeful if I'm going to get movies watched. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I went through my schedule, and it just said like, "All right." It, well, what I did is I went through my Netflix queue uh-huh. and just wrote down the ones that the the movies on there that I most want to see. Um, and frankly, I also picked it, nothing that was incredibly long because chances are I'll be watching them at about three a.m. Right. And so I actually like printed off a timesheet for myself so that I work eight hours a day. That's how it's going to be. Nice. Um, so that I work 40 hours a week and not 50 or something like that. I still, it's not, it's not really number of hours. Uh, it's, right. I, I have to finish a certain number of things before I, my yeah. week is officially done, but that can usually be done in about 40 hours. Maybe you 42. Yourself a, you give yourself two 15 minute breaks and a one hour lunch period. Not really. Uh, here's what happens is uh, because for me, the day is split up by my sleeping. So it's the day starts at midnight and then it's like, all right, so I'll write down midnight to four. Okay. So I worked four hours. Now I will sleep. And then 2 p.m. to 6 p.m. That's the other four hours. So I've got my eight hours. And in doing so, I found it surprisingly liberating mm. because it's like, all right, I've worked my eight hours this for today and I've got the rest of the evening now to watch a movie. Yes. I know that I could just walk over and get more work done, but the work will be there at midnight when the next day starts. And, uh, and it's been going pretty well so far. Uh, it's only, it's only been a few days, but, uh, you know, when you, when you limit yourself, uh, it is it is surprisingly freeing, and so the other night I was like, "Oh, hey, 
I've got my work done for the day, and now I will watch a movie like I've never done. And so I finally got around to watching a, a, a Blu-ray that I'm supposed to review for the site called uh, called uh, Alambrista. Unfortunately, one of the special features is another movie, which I need to watch so that I can talk about <laughs> it. <laughs> but um, I'm glad you feel that obligation. I did. I reviewed Tiny Furniture without watching Creative Nonfiction, which is on on that. Well, I, I feel an obligation to watch it because it's it's a good movie and it's made in a very cinema very uh, verite uh, way and uh, I don't know how to say, style is what I should have mm-hmm. said um, and it's but the guy who made it previously had made a documentary and so I'd be interested to see mm. how much overlap there was in style like maybe he made this in a cinema verite style. Because he thinks in terms of documentary, so I kind of wanted to watch it so that I could compare the two. Um, but I haven't. But now it's I got to make extra time to watch that if I'm going to, in, in good conscience, write about this thing. So, um, so yeah, it's uh, so I'm excited. My hope is that I'm able to watch more movies now. Um, I probably won't write about them, but it's you know, it, this this comes from this. Uh, if if you're on if you're a friend of mine on Facebook, then chances are if you're on Facebook at say I don't know five a.m., you will see a, an avalanche of lists coming yeah. from my account. I've noticed those in which I'm because, not even really on Facebook, but every once in a while I will <laughs> notice that. Because what'll happen is I'll be I'll be up late and I will be uh, doing something with my work that doesn't require me to be actively working but i still need to be at my computer right um i still refuse to say what i do for a living on the, on the podcast so um so i have so i'm still tethered to my workstation and uh so i'll just be like hey i'll go through i'll look through all these um facebook movie lists and i'll just click on the things that i've seen and it's just like okay i'm doing pretty good i'm, I'm always above average and that's pretty good. But then it's like, oh, I haven't seen nearly as – I haven't seen – I'll go through a list that's just like, oh, well, there goes any self-esteem I have. Why do I <laughs> – and it, and it throws me into this thing of just like, I have two podcasts. I don't even deserve one because <laughs> look at all these movies I haven't seen. You, know? you don't have to earn a podcast. <laughs> oh, I, I know. I've listened to enough other ones to know <laughs> that. But it's that feeling of like if, if, if I have the audacity to have two of them, both of them movie-related, as if I mm-hmm. – as if I, uh, as if I'm snob or nerd enough to be like, yeah, I've seen all these movies. It's like, yeah, but I haven't seen all these movies. Maybe I, I got to get back to work. And I just felt uh, so. It came from that. It came from, as so often is the case with me. It came from an insecurity. Mm-hmm. But my hope is that. But rather than just sit around and hate myself, which there was some of that too, but it, it spurred me on to actual action. And uh, so I'm very excited. I'm. I'm. My hope is that I'll. I'll get to see like. Like four, four movies a week. I need to to do that. When I was in college, oh yeah, I watched my my goal, and I generally uh, achieved it was to watch a movie I'd never seen before at least once a day, mm-hmm. and I did that. Yeah. Um, now, you know what? Now, I mean, I see actually there was a big gap after college until not that long ago where I did, wasn't seeing as many movies. I see a lot now mm-hmm. because of um, the occasional press screenings and stuff. Right. But the problem is that I see new stuff. So I see lots of new stuff and uh, there are classic films that I have, that I've not gotten around to. With and I, part of that is also because I'm, 
um, I spend as much time watching television every week as I do movies because I have this other right. podcast. I mean, I, I, I work, you know, I don't work out of the home, so I work an eight-hour day plus an hour break plus commute time. Right. Um, and I have two podcasts, and I go to these screenings, and I watch TV, and I sleep about five and a half right. hours a night. Yeah, and incidentally, you also have a, a person that you live with and uh, would like to spend time with, ideally. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Anyway, it's it, and and I had written a blog about this uh, several months yeah. ago, and uh, about how I was excited that I because I had actually scaled back. I was working fifty hours a week, and then realized that's I don't think I can sustain that, yeah. and so uh, I was able to cut back, and I was able to immediately, I, I at least had more time. And I was, and I took advantage of that for a while, and then I discovered that, much to my own surprise, I'm kind of a workaholic. I feel like I'm, because just like, well, if I do all the work now, it's like I'm working towards some magical like five months off. Like I can get five. <laughs> it's like no, the work's always coming. Yeah, just handle it week to week. Yeah, if yeah. not day to day. And so, <laughs> so that's the next step is managing my time, which I'm doing uh, now, and I'm very excited. Well, listeners, if that little, uh, if you, you might have noticed. During that little pre-topic topic, <laughs> that uh, Tyler did most of the talking. Get used to it. Yep. Because um, we have it's episode two seventy. As uh, longtime listeners know, if you've been listening for at least ten weeks, you probably know this. Any episode that ends in a zero. Who was the last one? Um, Jarmish. Was that? Yeah, I guess okay. Jarmish was the last one, and that was a great episode. Yeah, I was really happy with that. This one I'm going to be happy with, but I'm not going to have a lot to contribute. And I'll tell you why. We're doing a, a profile, is what I was going to say. Um, and here's the thing with me. I like music. Mm-hmm. Um, I like rock and roll, I guess, and popular music forms. Okay, Dad. I, I that could not have like, I don't know what else to, I don't know what else to say. I like, I guess I like popular music. Okay. I enjoy the 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 type of music you hear in a movie i enjoy it mm-hmm. i don't have much of a memory for it oh okay um i remember how a scene made me feel but um you know i for for example uh, i know that everyone knows the theme from the godfather i couldn't hum it for you right now if you asked me to Da-da. right <laughs> like that I d- like that watch out familiar. here comes the godfather right he's gonna swallow you up yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's one I, of the dumbest jokes I've ever made. I I'm just, sorry. I like that joke. Okay. I just don't have a head for music. Okay, uh, for that kind of music, there are occasional exceptions. It's certainly something that's if it's the theme of like a franchise that I like and have seen a lot of. I know, um, I know Harry Potter. I know the Gremlins uh, song. The Gremlins song is so great too. Stay tuned uh, for next week; it might show up. <laughs> um, yeah, we're doing two weeks in a row about music, so I'm, it's a little daunting to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, Thankfully, next week we'll have somebody who can speak at length about music. Yes, like from a technical standpoint as yeah. well. Um, so th- I'm saying that going in that there's so, movies we're going to be talking about today. In fact, I'd say uh, all of them. Uh, are movies that I like and that I know I like the music, but I won't be able to talk that. Uh, it'll be this will be uh, somewhat instructional for me, I think, or educational. Will it? Yeah, you've got things to say. I have no musical training. I can only talk about how this music made me feel. But you in also the know the, of the music. Film. That's you, true. You could hum it. 
Uh, yes, I could. Yeah, or, I, or whistle I, it, which I won't. We'll be playing clips. We'll be, we'll, yeah, we'll be playing some clips, which yeah. will be fun. Um, I can't. Yeah, I, I, I. So forgive me going in. I don't have that kind of uh, head for it. But I, I do. I do still know which scores I liked. I know what my favorite scores were. My favorite. My two favorite scores of 2011 were both by the same composer. I forget his name, mm-hmm. but they were Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and mm. The Skin I Live In. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, so I still... It's not like I ignore music. I just don't have a memory for it. I do have a... It's interesting. I remember uh, when I was younger, um, in high school or something, we took like a, some kind of artistic aptitude test or something. And I scored very high in music, which always fascinated me because I, I have no desire to do anything musically aside from sing the gambler when my friends and i play a uh, rock band uh <laughs> there's re- or psycho killer yeah, that's good. in which uh yeah I, I think i've said this on the show before but uh that that song has french in it uh-huh. guess I, I didn't know that until i was singing it and then it was like oh oh i guess that's why it's five devil heads because uh, you got to speak <laughs> french halfway through it yeah so um yeah i just know the qu'est-ce que c'est part i don't know the rest yeah of that's french. really all you care about um, not you, I mean people in general. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, so I guess to a certain extent I have a good head for, for music, but I don't have any training, uh, in it. I, but I do have a, a pretty good memory for it. So yes, I could whistle these if I wanted to, but at the same time, uh, well, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll do a little introduction. So when I was, uh, younger and started getting into film, of, and I started becoming interested in like composers and such, uh, film composers. Uh, you know, you go through your John Williams, and we all eventually land on Danny Elfman, and we enjoy him, and then we realize it's eh, kind of the same thing. That, you know what? That's not actually true. Like if you if you really like delve into a composer's like his whole discography or filmography, deep cuts. I, the deep cuts, yeah. uh, you'll find that even somebody like Danny Elfman, who unfortunately has become something of a almost by ex- by uh, just associating with Tim Burton, he's become something of a punchline in that, like, uh, it all sounds the same. It's like, you got to listen to the right ones, and you will see the subtle differences, or rather hear the subtle differences, and you come to appreciate that composer uh, as, an, as a, an, an adaptable artist. Uh, with Danny Elfman, I would say something like a civil action uh, or a simple plan, which you'll or probably... Or Boingo Boingo. Or, oh, yes, which, by the way, is, I have a, the hardest time in the world saying it. Boingo, boingo. It's, I can say it once. If you ask me to do it again, it'll be inga binga. So, um, that, but oingo, boingo stuff is really good. I like, oh, it's, I like it it's a lot. delightful. Um, but anyway, so then, so I started buying soundtracks, uh, specifically scores, um, which was uh, unusual uh, for like a 15-year-old. But for some reason, and it's not like I, they're, they're not easy to listen to. You know what I mean? And so, like, I would listen to them, like, while I was driving, and I'd be like, this is a weird thing. Like, I'm, like, treating my life like it's a movie now, and uh, this is the soundtrack to my life. I'm not sure if I like that. But then I, st- then I saw Fargo, and I remember being so, like, that, the music was stuck in my head, and it was such, a, such an odd yeah. melancholy to it. And this is and melancholy. By the way, is going to be said. I'm going to say 25 times during this episode. And this is what I'm talking about. The moment the opening credits, when it's white and then the headlights appear, I remember vividly how it how I feel, but yeah. I couldn't tell you how the music goes to that. Okay. 
So we'll, and yeah, we'll, I've made this point. We'll come to, to, to Fargo Can I in a tell while. you something that's yes. a little bit of a tangent right now? Okay. Just because it's on my mind. You were talking about Psycho Killer, talking about the fact that it's sung in French. I now have Bad Romance by Lady Gaga stuck in my head because there's a part of that song that's in French. See, I don't have that song in my head. Here's why. I don't think I've ever heard it, and I feel like that's a win. No, it's one of the best songs of the past 10 years. Bad Romance is so amazing. It's Do you like, think I will enjoy it? Maybe. You know you know, the movie I would compare it to? What's that? Moulin Rouge. In that... All right. That movie grew on me. Yeah. It, as I'm saying, it's like, it's kind of nuts, and it's, it's so many things at once, and all of them turned up to 11, that it shouldn't work. It should be awful. Mm-hmm. And 99 times out of 100, that approach does not work. But for some reason, with Moulin Rouge and with Bad Romance... It just it it's just perfect. It's perfection. I guess uh, when we're done uh, with this, I'll have to go and listen to it and watch the video. It's an awesome video. Uh, you've just com- you know what? Now I'm out because <laughs> that's too much time to devote to this. Um, but uh, so so let's get into it, shall we? You indeed. mentioned uh, you mentioned Fargo, um, and we are going to start not with Fargo. We are going to start with the Coen Brothers yeah. today. Um, and because our, our our subject of our profile this week, as you might have guessed by now, mm-hmm. is Carter, Carter Burwell mm-hmm. or Carter Barwell. Apparently, this is a thing I'm going to do all, all, all episodes. I love his score for Fargo. <laughs> um, so we will return to Fargo, I'm sure. Yes. Uh, but we want to, I think, you, you definitely want to start with Blood Simple. Yeah, because that's actually the first, uh, the first uh, feature film that he did. And we will be playing. A, by the way, we're going to be talking about various films. We're we're not going to play clips from all of them, of course. Yeah. Uh, but do you want to play the clip before we talk about this? Sure. Okay. We will play it right now.
Okay, you've just heard a clip from uh, Blood Simple. Yes. And my hope is that it's... One thing that I love about Carter Burwell, and by the way, uh, side note, he's never been nominated for an Oscar, and that is a huge oversight, because he does what I think a composer should do. He, get, he shapes the mood of the film while also allowing his music to be shaped by the narrative of the film. He does not overcome the movie. Uh, he complements it, but also... It's it's a weird relationship. I remember I first I, I said this when we talked about the movie uh, The Informant exclamation point uh-huh. um, in which uh, Marvin Hamlish had uh, this crazy ragtime score in a movie that did not take place then uh-huh. makes more sense to to have it in the Sting not The Informant and people are like well, that takes me out of it. It's like no 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 that lets you know how you're supposed to take these events. So I think the music can inform how we feel. But the good ones also recognize the emotions of the characters involved. I I think the reason, the main reason, if I can be cynical, that Carter Carter Burwell doesn't get nominated is because his albums, or his, sorry, his scores are less likely to be purchased as albums because they are so in tuned with the film that often uh, they they're less satisfying to listen to on their own. And with, with, I'm, I'm looking at some right here, like that we'll get to like Rob Roy and, um, uh, I don't know what else was I going to say? The man who wasn't there. We'll get to, I right. think those are both things you could definitely in my memory, at least could listen to on their own. And he does. He, I will say this, he can adapt, uh, his style to fit, to fit the movie that he's, yeah, he still has a definite style. You can always tell, when it's a Carter Burwell score, but at the same time, for example, I was listening to clips from The Blind Side. He does this score for The Blind Side, and it is, I'll say this, it's, I would never choose to purchase that score, but he absolutely captures the spirit of that mediocre bullshit film. I have that DVD at home, by the way. Give it a watch. Enjoy. Yeah. Wait, did I say enjoy? <laughs> uh, uh, but let's talk about Blood Simple. We right. already played the clips, so we should probably talk about the, it. The nature of that movie i mean it is a stripped down noir it's an old like it has an old timey quality there's only a handful of characters that you know at all uh and it really does i'm not sure if i'd say it's the film is a deconstruction of that type of genre but it does seem to dip into that and strip away all the fat and in that way i think this score is there's minimal instrumentation and it's just this same thing over and over. It has a quality that's kind of like Halloween, like uh, John Carpenter's score for Halloween, which is just very basic, but somehow in its simplicity, it winds up being more ominous right. than all the uh, instrumentation it's in the world. It's surprisingly propulsive for its... Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's a yeah. good way of saying it. I know I want to... Apparently, my job this episode is going to be to go on tangents. That's all right. De- general deconstruction thing. It's a term you get... You hear a lot, I think, these mm-hmm. days. Uh, certainly, in light of *Cabin in the Woods*, where I think it applies. Yeah. But also, uh, I, I, I hear it applied to things like *Piranha 3D*, and I think just because a film is aware of its genre doesn't mean that it's deconstructing it. Right. That's, Meta is not the same. Yeah. Or postmodern is what yeah. I would say. Postmodern. Yeah. So I would say *Blood Simple* is a uh, something of a postmodern noir. 
but not deconstructive. Right, because, I mean, you could say that, because postmodern almost always, not always, but it almost always has a, uh, kind of almost poking fun at itself a little bit. You With Piranha 3D, of course, you have a lot of it. Mm-hmm. But like with Blood Simple, deadly serious. There's some humor in there, but you you almost choke on your laughter, you know, when uh, when M. Emmett Walsh says something that's delightful, and then you realize he is a horrible murderer, uh, yeah. willing to do, willing to kill people at random. It would appear. Um, then you're just like, oh, it's not so funny now, I guess. Yeah, but um, but I think p- characters and we we've done an episode on postmodernism, but characters in postmodern movies tend to behave like characters in movies to some yeah. extent. Yeah, yeah, and the Coen Brothers are probably maybe better than anyone at building a world within their movie wherein that makes sense and i will say that a lot of the clips we'll be listening to are from coen brothers films i specifically will be incorporating uh clips from uh movies a uh, movie by bill condon um one of the twilight films who and i well, uh, who did the first twilight is it Catherine hardwick uh yeah okay because uh, bill condon May went on to actually uh, make a Twilight film, but we'll we'll get to those uh, a little later. Yeah, well, let's let's move. I mean, he also did Raising Arizona. I don't know if he's going to say about that, but uh, it's it's been so long since I've seen Raising Arizona that I don't really remember that. Well, I mean, he's not responsible for the uh, the crazy ass opening. Yeah, is yeah. that is that him or is that I, like I don't think that's him. Okay. But I, you know what, I didn't look it up. Okay, to be honest with you, um, that's one that I actually know. Oh yeah, <laughs> I, I would yeah. sing it if I could. I've seen the film once, and I remember it. You've really only seen Raising Arizona once? Yeah, because I didn't uh, didn't care for it. I I've never felt the it, need to revisit it. I've seen it a gajillion times. Yeah, a lot of people have. Maybe I was I didn't like it the first time. Maybe I'll like it more now. I did not care for its manic pace. Huh. But uh, I did see it when I was young and maybe couldn't appreciate that kind of thing. Uh, but we will jump to the next clip. This is yeah. also from um, a uh, Coen Brothers film. And talk about characters behaving like characters in movies. Oh, no question. Um, and books. Yeah, yeah. Specifically the books of Dashiell Hammett. But, um, and actually, I will, uh, we'll talk a little bit about the film before okay. we play the score. Because one thing... Okay. <laughs> I'll say this before I say anything. No offense to any Irish people in the in the audience. Or Irish um, Americans. Or Irish Americans, but like half of myself. Oh I'm sorry. Tread well, lightly. Y- oh I know because that half will beat the hell out of me. Because right. uh, you know that's, that's about, your way. You just call me a sociopath a sociopath and it'll be even. Fair enough. <laughs> All right. Um you're half a sociopath, because yeah. as we know Irish people anyway. That's a veiled reference to an episode two weeks ago. That's right. Not that veiled. Yeah, it's pretty direct, I think. Um, And when you call attention to it, I'd say it's the most direct reference (laughs) you can make. Um, That was me unveiling it. (laughs) Fair enough. So, uh, one thing that I've that I'm there's some Irish in me. I've got a lot of uh, a little bit of everything, but I'm fascinated by the way the Irish are depicted in film and on television. Um, Like a good example, you watch The Sopranos and then you watch Brotherhood. Uh-huh. Okay, one is about the Italian mob uh, and an Italian family. One is about the Irish mob and an Irish family. One is so over the top and outlandish and crazy that it's often quite funny in the midst of terrible things happening. One is, and I say this in the best possible way, dour uh-huh. and so serious. Solemn. And, and solemn. Solemn and somber. And you watch that, you watch Road to Perdition. You watch The Departed. The F- Departed is often very funny. But one thing that there's this weird tradition where there's like 
it's like ah like you hear songs like danny boy where there's oh it's sad but it's just so uh there's it's such a a maudlin song but uh but when sung well and sung right as in the miller's crossing incidentally Mm -hmm. um it has such a sense of tradition to it that uh-huh. uh, it's like, oh, we we love our tradition. Incidentally, it's not going to keep us from murdering everybody. <laughs> and and I feel like there's a sense of irony to the score in Miller's Crossing that it has this it has this nice sweeping sense of tradition to it in the midst of horrible murder and incredible violence. And it's worth noting that when they choose to use Danny Boy, it's in the midst of a really bloody and violent and awesome uh sequence yeah. in the film see and that's one i haven't seen in a while i've seen it more than once but i i, I, need, I need to revisit that as so. i was listening to the back back to these scores i was just like oh i haven't seen miller's crossing in years and i feel like there's something wrong with that um and so as you listen to this you'll hear the theme to miller's crossing and now imagine that it is that this music is underscoring horrific violence and grudges and all that sort of thing. And you'll understand, like, th- there's an irony to it. It's sort of commenting on this culture, but it's also laying the groundwork for the li- the, the lives that these characters live. Um, that there's a weird sense of... Because these characters don't view it ironically. They don't say like, "Hey, it's kind of weird that we have this sense of tradition and and community while killing each other." Like they don't sure. think that, but that adds to the mentality that they live in. So we will play the theme for Miller's Crossing right now. Okay, so uh, we, we need to step on the gas maybe a little bit here. But and that's is there anything fine. else We're... you wanted to say about that song or that, that music? No, we'll just, I think we'll, we'll leave it. Okay. Well, let's uh, power through to, well, Barton Fink. We're not going to play a clip because right. there's... I mean, it's, it's, it's good hard, music. It's hardly but it's... even music, though. Right. It's, it's textural. 
and there, there definitely is a yeah atmospheric is the best way to describe it it's it, it's a very surreal film and the music itself is more there's a definite theme mm-hmm. but um but it's more just uh there's an ethereal quality to it and there's also not a whole lot of music no in Barton not Fink. really um i think i mean isn't the soundtrack to that like did, don't you have a cd that's like fargo and barton fink on my cd did before my stupid moving company lost it on the way to uh los angeles from chicago they lost a whole box of cds by lost i mean stolen i think they stole it that's my theory yeah so no, they're big carter Burwell fans <laughs> oh if only they knew they're just like hey a box of cds and then they open up like this is bullshit <laughs> yeah i think that sometimes when i pick up uh Go to our P.O. box, which you can find on battleshipretention.com, mm-hmm. and I'll have a stack of Blu-rays, uh, you know, and I'll have them, I'll, like, have to make a stop, so I'll, like, hide them under the seat, you know? Yeah. And I think, like, so what if someone saw, like, oh, there's, like, an envelope full of Blu-rays in there, and it's, like, The Red House starring Edward G. Robinson. <laughs> and, and there's, like, I can't even resell these. <laughs> My fence would punch me in the face if I gave him this stack of movies. Um... So, yeah, if you're, if uh, we're you're, being very elitist towards the criminal element. Yeah, but if you see someone like at, uh, you know, uh, Echo Park with uh, a bunch of bootleg DVDs out on a blanket and one of them is The Red, the red House <laughs> starring Edward G. Robinson, just give it back. That came from me. That was stolen from me. <laughs> no, that one didn't get stolen. That, that review is on the website. You should check it out. So let's move on. Um, but for the Vampire Slayer, he did. I don't remember that music at all. Right. Uh, Wayne's World 2, I don't remember that. Um, but Hudsucker Proxy, another uh, period. Yeah. And and um, that's the thing is I want to, uh, real quick, without going into a lot of detail. I yeah, mean, let, let me know if you, Look, how, if look at how different these types of movies are. California with a K, This Boy's Life, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Doc Hollywood, and The Band Played On, which is a TV movie about the AIDS epidemic. Wayne's World uh-huh. 2... I, like, I was going to just look at the year 2000 where he did uh, the, the modern day Hamlet, <laughs> What Planet Are You From, Before Night Falls, and A Book of Shadows, Blair Witch yeah. 2. I mean, he's, he really I mean, can go all over the place. I, mm-hmm. I think the best composers can work within any genre, bring their, put their own stamp on it, while also adapting to the the needs of that particular film and i think carter burwell very much is that and so that's all i wanted to mention uh and so we'll jump to uh, we'll jump, rob roy uh yeah rob roy is what i was going to jump to uh, we don't is, have we it, don't have a we do have a clip for it but i wasn't planning on nah, playing it let's not okay but it is in my memory as i mentioned before more of a oscar type score it is but that's it's <laughs> a very uh, is it, do you say ribald? Is that how you say that that word? Ribald. Ribald. Okay, because because it's, it's ribaldry. Yeah, but it's so. ribald. I guess like that's yeah. that's the term for that film. Like it's yeah. just it's very it has the quality of like one of those books that you'd buy at the supermarket with like a, a bare chested <laughs> man and a buxom lady. Sure, it has that quality to it. A and bodice so, ripper. A, what was that? A bodice ripper. Is that a thing? That's a slang term for romance novels. Nice. I've, I've, to- I've been t- told. Oh, okay. I thought, you, I thought you were about to say, that's a term that I just made up, but I, it sounds good. <laughs> uh, I wish I'd made that up. But, but that's cool. a film that's it's very melodramatic, and, it's, and it's, very, it's very sweeping. I know I said that already. but like, mm-hmm. uh, and, he, and he adapts his score accordingly. It's very, very big, and, and the 
all the characters in the film are Scottish, and there is a Scottish influence in the score. And there are scenes of, uh, you know, romance uh, between uh, Liam Neeson and uh, Jessica Lange. And it encompasses that as well. It's an adventure. It's a swashbuckling film. There's like adventure. There's sword fights. But there's, you know, people riding through the woods on horses. But then there's also scenes of tender romance between uh, a husband and his wife. And so there's also a rape that uh, that is also pretty, pretty uh, romantic. I think. (laughs) No, I mean that I don't really like this movie. Rob Roy. I do. Um, well, now it looks like I like it just because of the rape scene. I, I think part of it, I, I don't like the way that rape is presented. I think it's, uh, I mean, it certainly is, uh, I don't think it's glorified. No, I think it's, but it's, it almost is like, uh, I'm trying to think how to say this. Like, I feel like there's nastiness to it not on the part of the character the rapist mm-hmm. but almost on the part of the director like he's maybe trying too hard to be to show how how mean this rapist is because he doesn't not because he's a the, the rapist is, is it's all it, he, he he rapes the woman as almost like a message yeah it's like and, i've conquered yes this, this so, situation I, yeah i feel like the way it's presented is too much on that, given that the character who is raped is also a character in the movie. Yeah. And not enough, not enough is, is from her point of view and it almost cheapens, uh, the horror and the anguish of that act by presenting it, I guess is no more different than him slaughtering all the cattle or something. Do you know what I mean? It, they, and that's the thing. It, I would actually agree with you. Like in the moment, it does seem to be more from his point of view, not like, "Hey, this is a cool thing he's doing," which is clearly what he would think. Uh, although the character is surprisingly self-hating, um, mm-hmm. but like, it does seem to be more from his point of view as the victimizer, which we're not comfortable with, than her point of view as the victim. But then it does shift to her point of view afterwards yeah, when true. she when she runs into the water and cleans herself. But in that's the moment. True. I agree with you. I, I'm not. I don't think it's glamorous, but it's just like, oh, maybe we could have had a. If you're going to yeah. show it, maybe have a close up on her face rather than his. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, it's that scene has. I've only seen the movie once, and it's been probably more than ten years at this point, and that scene has stuck with me, but not in a way that I that you like. That I like. <laughs> but I mean, I, I don't even. Know, I mean, because. It's certainly it's over quick more quickly than the rape scene in Irreversible, right? Um, and but and Irreversible is also a film that I don't want to rewatch, and especially if that's a scene that I don't want to rewatch. It's no. it's horrifying, um, but I still feel like it was done well. It's horrifying in a way that is to the benefit of the artistic statement or mm-hmm. what have you. And I don't know that that's the case with Rob Roy. Man, now I just. Now, to bring it back to the, the topic at hand, part of me wants to go in and see, because I'm sure there was music during that sequence. Uh-huh. Yeah. I kind of want to see what it was. Right. But, um, but yeah, so there's a lot of elements to this film, and mm-hmm. all of them are very heightened and very melodramatic, and I think his score works for it. And, he again, he's able to adapt it. Now, no. did you see the documentary, The Celluloid Closet? 
Um, I think you read the book. No, right? I think I saw the documentary. Okay, and I don't. I I never saw it. Is, yeah, the, is really, the music notable in it? I don't remember. Okay, so all right, we'll we'll move on. We already then. we we said we talked talked about Fargo at the beginning, but we do want to play a clip from Fargo. Yeah, and the, I do want to say before we play the clip, the thing that fascinates me about the score in Fargo is that Fargo really is kind of a small story. Mm-hmm. You know, there are there are tr- you know based on real events, quote unquote, but fictional non-fictional it doesn't matter there are some stories that are just very big and grandiose and then there are some that are just about regular people and their problems even if the problems involve murder and kidnapping but it's still fairly intimate and fargo is one of those you wouldn't know it from its score it's huge yeah it is operatic and maybe that's the idea is that even in the midst of these characters small lives that what you know even though it's on the in the grand scheme of things it's not that important it sure is important to them and so if there was if you were going to have music to a traumatic event in your life even if nobody in the even in your city really knew about it this is the music you would hear i know that's is that too abstract what i'm saying uh, no no uh, i i the thing i was going to say about the music in my memory of it again i couldn't hum a single bar of it but that it is uh, it is it is grand um, but even at the beginning, the very beginning, when you see the car come through the headlights and the music swells, yeah. it swells in a way, It all, like every piece of music feels like it's scoring the end of something. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like even during the rising action of the story, it feels like you're at the end, almost like there's a, almost a uh, defeated? Maybe? Uh, the word I was going to say is mournful. Yeah, there's there a, there's yes, a mournful or... quality to, and that's I, I I said I was going to say melancholy, and I would say uh, with Miller's Crossing there's a melancholy quality, and certainly with Fargo, but yes, there is a mournful. There's a like what he's able to do, and this is as, probably as far as I'm going to go talking about instrumentation, but what he's able to do with strings, and like with a violin mm-hmm. in that film, it sounds so sad. It sounds almost like an animal dying. Um, and it's uh, yeah, it's it's quite tragic, and the film is is a tragedy in many ways, a surprisingly funny one, but yeah. uh, but it is quite tragic. So we will. That's a movie, by the way. That um, when I first saw it, I guess when I was maybe in middle school or something, didn't get that it was a comedy. I liked it, but I didn't get the jokes. It wasn't until like high school when I revisited it that I was like, oh, this movie's hilarious. See, I laughed, but felt like I wasn't supposed to. Uh. Like, I still got the jokes, but then didn't get that they were supposed to make me laugh. Well, it felt like a flaw. But, that, yeah, yes. let's, let's play. Speaking of this mournful music, we will play it right now. Thank you. 
Okay. Once again, we really got to keep going. Okay. Um, and we're going to be jumping around a lot now. Yeah, so. we can we can jump ahead quite a bit unless you want to say something about fear. Uh, <laughs> see, this, this is what I'm talking. About. I've never even seen fear, and yeah. I know that the Sunday's cover of Wild Horses, the Rolling Stones song, okay, yeah. is in that movie because it's apparently in the scene that people talk about the roller coaster scene, uh, which you've brought up recently on the show, and I and I don't remember. I haven't seen the film. Uh, yeah, neither have I. Doesn't he, like, uh, do something to her on the... Don't they, aren't they sexually active yeah, he, on the uh, roller coaster? With his, yeah, finger. He, uh, he pleasures her. D- digital penetration. <laughs> um, Sounds like a videodrome term. <laughs> um, the Spanish prisoner, I don't remember. Uh, if I could... I've been wanting to find that score... Yeah. But it's they never put it out. They never put that score out, and that's a shame because I think that is some of Carter Burwell's best work. Hmm. There's a real like, I mean, if if you've seen The Spanish Prisoner, written and directed by David Mamet, we've talked about it before. Um, there's a real twisty and turny quality to yeah. it, and and there's a playful quality to to the film, and that's definitely in the score. If I had it. I would absolutely play it. You can find it online, not to download, but you can find it online. I would suggest listening to it. It sounds a little crackly. I think somebody just held a microphone up to their TV or something. Yeah. Uh, but seek it out and listen to it, and it and it has this kind of is this it, this fun quality to it. Is that it. the only time he's worked with David Mamet? Uh, yes, I believe so. That's 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 odd. Um, the Jackal, I don't know. Even though I watched some of that on TV recently, it was like on and I watched the, like the first 25 minutes. How'd it work so. out for you? It's not good. <laughs> I think that was one of the, I mean, that was 97, so it was probably when I was first starting to get take, taste. Yeah. I saw that. Like, I think my dad had rented it when it first came out on video. And like up until a certain point in my life, I liked movies. Like, I, mm. if I watched a movie, I had a good time watching it because I just like movies so much. Yeah. And it was, seemed like maybe about that mid to late 90s when I started to develop taste. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Oh, that, that weird moment when the idea of a movie that, wait, no, I was interested in this. How is it not good? Uh-huh. It was something I was interested in. Now I saw it, and it wasn't good. I don't understand how that's possible. Yeah, yeah. And it, it lasts for about a year and a half. <laughs> I think. Uh, well, I think the Jackal, I think, probably in 97 was probably about the time that I was... Well, no, I, it doesn't seem right. Me or 15 right. at the time. Because I was... Yeah, 14, 15? Probably, yeah, 14 or 15. That doesn't seem right. But I guess maybe I did just really want the Jackal to be good. Yeah. Jack Black's good in it. I like that scene. I don't. It's uncomfortable. Admittedly, I haven't seen that scene in 12 years. It doesn't end well, that scene. You mean it doesn't end well for Jack Black's character? It doesn't. <laughs> yeah. um, well, no, I'm not saying he's uh, he's good insofar as everything works out for him. So yeah, maybe it was when I was about 14 when I started to have that. Yeah, or maybe that was at the tail end of it. Anyway, uh, moving on to the Gods and Monsters. Okay, I did want to specifically play the uh, uh, a bit from Gods and Monsters because uh, for those that haven't seen it, it's a it's a very good movie. I'm not sure if I'd say it was great, but. There's a lot of good stuff in it. Great performance by uh, Ian McKellen, uh, Lynn Redgrave. Uh, I've said it before. I'll say it again. Brendan Fraser is never better than when he's acting alongside an older British man. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Also see The Quiet American for this. But, um, or when he's acting alongside Looney Tunes. I suppose, yes. Or uh, an ape named Ape or whatever. Um, I never saw George of the Jungle. It's not very good. I'm mostly But well, I want to make clear that Looney Tunes Back in Action is awesome. It is awesome. We, we, we should watch that. profile Joe Dante at some point. Oh, we totally should. Um, and read um, 
when we did our Jim Jarmusch episode, we talked about Jonathan Rosenbaum writing about about uh, Dead Man. Yeah. Now he didn't write a book about Looney Tunes back in action, but he wrote a long review. Of he Looney Tunes lo- back in action. Yeah, he loved it. He thought and he it was, loved jo- Joe Dante. Yeah. And yeah, he wrote a really long and really interesting piece that you should still be able to find on the Chicago Reader website about Looney Tunes back in action that I would definitely recommend reading. I seem to recall because I I didn't know anything about Looney Tunes back in action, and I think. You were interested in about in it because I don't think Joe Dante really registered to me until I was a little older. But I remember I I think we were living together yeah. when uh, the movie came out, and you said like, "Hey, read this review." <laughs> I was like, "What?" <laughs> Immediately, I was totally thrown off. But uh, so with Gods and Monsters, it's the story of James Whale. Uh, it's not the whole story. It's it's a fictionalized uh, mm-hmm. story. Uh, account of his relationship with his uh, gardener james whale was the director of frankenstein bride of frankenstein the invisible man uh the old dark house and um so listening to it you can definitely hear the carter burwell uh melancholy vibe to it but because of this specific story you know all those scores in those early universal films they were bombastic there mm-hmm. was a lot of instrumentation more than uh carter burwell often uses uh he uses a fair amount in in fargo but he doesn't often use that much uh and even when he does it doesn't often have just this huge over-the-top quality uh but with the gods and monsters score he will frequently go into that because uh, these characters still think in terms of Frankenstein and and a character being mm. defined by the movies that he made. And yeah. so uh, the the track that I'm that we're going to be playing for this, I believe the track is called Franken Whale, and it's it's part of a dream sequence that uh, right. in, that uh, James Whale has. And so, of course, in that the music has to be particularly. Uh, specific to like the 1930s universal horror movies but um also he incorporates one of the things that i that i do like about him is that he does he does give a theme to all of his not all his movies the the best ones there's a definite theme there that he Mm -hmm. will return a very melodic theme that he will return to and uh weave into the larger score and so you'll hear that uh in this clip which we will play right now
Okay, anything you want to say about them coming out of it? Uh, no, I don't think so. All right. Well, let's, uh, okay, so Big Lebowski and Velvet Goldmine, both movies that I think of as re- relying on period songs. Yeah. Um, Although I do believe that Carter Burwell is responsible for the, uh, the music that Autobahn puts out, like the, the techno, uh-huh. I think he did that. That's awesome. Which, uh, I almost want to, I won't, but, uh, I almost want to play that because it's just, he, he's so adaptable that he can do something that sounds like a German techno <laughs> in the, uh, in the eighties. Um, now, uh, the general's daughter, did the lose Did the, did you lose that soundtrack as well? I did. Cause that was one. I don't like that movie. Um, it's Simon West, right? Yes. Man, he just he just like drenches his movies in this like fake like it, like even at night it seems like everything's like warm and sun dappled. Do you know yeah. what I mean? And it just seems so I liked that with the general's daughter oddly enough because that include with the score and the the musical choices it has a very southern gothic quality that i think works for that film but not his others i i, I can actually see that um uh I, I in any case i don't like simon west not looking forward to the expendables 2 oh um, come on chuck norris is in it that's the same as it being good <laughs> i didn't see the expendables one nor did uh, I. but i do remember liking when you would listen when we lived together the first time when we hated each other yeah uh, it would, and apparently we still do uh, i mean uh, listen yeah. to two weeks ago two weeks ago yeah apparently uh, i'm just awful um <laughs> but uh yeah back the, the the only thing that could uh calm our rage was the general's daughter soundtrack apparently <laughs> that's a uh, that's a weird thing to say um, but but uh uh, do you have anything else to say about it? We don't have a clip or anything. Uh, no, we don't have a clip. But it is... it is uh, Everything about that movie is better than it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a great movie. I remember loving it at the time. Uh, and then I watched more movies that year. But um, that's 99, one of the best movie years ever. And General's Daughter is a good example of that. I'm joking. That's not true. Right. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, and, and the score by... Uh, it, th- there's a real... Oh, a, a pulpy quality to that film. Mm. Yeah. Uh, more pulpy than it should be, by the way, considering that there's a gang rape in it. Yeah. Um, Car- what's Carter Burwell doing scoring rapes left and right? I know. Man. The only thing I like about General's Daughter is when John Travolta is being a dick to the sheriff and his deputy, and he says, uh, why don't you get some of them uh, reflective sunglasses for you and the little one? Yeah. <laughs> There are there are some good lines in that, and and I think James Woods does a good job in that film. Um, uh-huh. But like, and the, but they use that song that is I, I maybe in '99 that track wasn't as overused. You know the the thing. Oh, oh Fortuna. Yeah, yeah. But I feel like it's in every video game commercial now. Like it's oh yeah, it's it's done to death. That yeah, song. and the, it, it's used to good effect. But uh, but yeah, so the film is is very pulpy, and uh, and I think his score reflects that. While still, again, retaining the uh, the Carter Burwell uh, quality, um, which is melancholy and infinite sadness. <laughs> so, moving on. Um, um, well, he did, 99 being one of the best years, he did two of the best movies in 99, Three yeah. Kings, which I didn't even realize until looking at this list. Yeah, me either. That he did, and being John Malkovich. Yeah. Which is kind of going back to 
Not it's not I guess not grandiose in the Fargo way, but it's mournful or, or at least Man oh man. That last thing, the uh, underwater uh the girl swimming underwater, I which like is which I is what spoil will be. being John Alkovich, I guess, but uh Little Girl Underwater I don't think spoils yeah. a lot. Um that is uh, heartbreaking. I remember, and uh, yeah, that is actually what we'll be well, let's, playing. Let's we'll, do it. Then. We'll play it right now, and then we'll we'll comment on it. So here's a clip from Being John Malkovich. Okay, what did you want to say about that? So that that clip is I mean, wipe the, the tears from my eye. Yeah, that clip is the note that the film ends on, and that actually goes into the uh, closing credits as well. That's why it's a little bit longer because I couldn't mm-hmm. find a place to cut it because it was all so damn beautiful. Um, yeah, that I think um, 
Carter Burwell does his best work with the Coens and Spike Jones. Um, and the Being John Malkovich soundtrack is just so atmospheric and it has this and he incorporates some instrumentation that kind of has a a a, year, a yearning quality uh-huh. because it's the beginning of the, of that track had a sounds sort of like a music box and it sounds and that just makes it sound so sad especially in the context of of where we're hearing it because we see uh a young uh, a young girl a little girl and we're just like oh that's oh that's so nice oh no it isn't we're yeah. hearing terrible things yeah that's yeah. and uh and then it just goes in, and then the way he incorporates like i said there's a, a definite theme to being john malkovich um and he incorporates that and uh and yeah like you you said you know kind of facetiously let me wipe the tears from my eyes like if there was any score that he put out there and we'll we'll get to where the wild things are in a moment um if he did any bit of music that I feel like just rips my heart out and mm-hmm. makes me start crying, it's the being John Malkovich score, which you wouldn't expect from one of the best comedies <laughs> of the last 20 years. Yeah. But, um, uh, so, uh, we can move on, on unless yeah. you want to say something. No, uh, mystery Alaska. I don't remember liking that music. What yeah. band are you from? I haven't seen that in forever. I wanted, uh, before night falls again. Okay. So 2000. So I'm 17, 18 by this mm-hmm. point. And I'd say, I have, and this is one I saw in the theater, um, I, and I don't, certainly I have taste now, but I'm still not that sophisticated, I guess, uh, of a movie viewer, mm-hmm. you know, especially when it comes to things that are maybe a little more formally daring. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really enjoyed Before Night Falls in the theater, but um, I, I, I remember feeling like, like, this isn't a movie in the sense that I have been raised to believe or have just conditioned by Hollywood movies to believe is a movie because the, um, the four night falls is incredibly episodic. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it does have, it's about this guy's life, but it's not, it doesn't have a, a follows B follows C kind of plot. We sort of just drop in on him at different points in his life. And, um, there are asides like the Johnny Depp, uh, scene. You I'd know. say that's the way to describe that scene, <laughs> um, which I, I, in retrospect, loved, and I and I liked it at the time. But I was feeling like this is so bizarre to me. I'm not used to seeing movies that are uh, put together like this. Yeah. Um, and the thing that maybe I had to hold on to that felt movieish to me is the score. Well, I don't have anything, but if you want, I can. No, no. I, I just, we can play something from no, it. It's I, we already fine. have plenty of clips. We can't okay. play clips or anything. That's just Fair how. It, do you, Do you know what I, what I mean? You know, it's you, been so long since I since okay. I've seen. It, I don't really remember it, unfortunately. Um, but I mean, think uh, again. We we talk about these moments that are of that are uh, beautiful that we remember, even though I can't remember the song. Mm-hmm. But the uh, do you remember the scene with the uh, the hot air balloon? Yes. And it's uh, that's a big grand moment well and that's that's what i'm to speak in larger terms and we'll talk about this a little bit uh next week as well um the music can be a very grounding influence like it like when you have a character like in uh before night falls who bounces around from one circumstance to another the character doesn't change i mean they do there's an arc to the character but they may not necessarily they're the constant and when you have a character piece I feel like the music should sort of relate how they're feeling. And so the music needs to be a constant as well. 
And so any, uh, as I said, any consistency throughout the film, I think, uh, I think the music should be that, um, rather than just bouncing around and just reflecting the circumstances. I think with a character piece, it should reflect the inner life mm. and the inner feelings of mm-hmm. uh, the character. Well said. Thank you. I also think, thing before night falls makes me think. I wish Johnny Depp would go back to doing things that are interesting. <laughs> I know. I, mean, I guess. I don't know. Would you consider? I heard the movie was bad. Would you consider the Rum Diary an interesting choice for him, or is it just? Uh, yeah, he's already played because he's already played. Well, I don't think he's playing just a straight up Thompson okay. thing. Uh, I think it's an interesting choice just because, like, he's doing something that isn't huge that isn't right. movie star like yeah, uh it's point. clearly a passion project so good for him but then of course that's sandwiched in between the fourth pirates film and another tim burton uh, forgettable film oops yeah yeah, yeah still yeah. watch those videos watch the video <laughs> to find out how we feel about dark shadows um but yeah i wish he would just do something even uh, a movie like chocolate which in retrospect i don't like as nearly as much as i did because right. i have better taste it was also 2000 right yep Chocolat, yeah, which I saw twice in the theater because I liked it so much at the time, oh, wow. and now I find it to be uh, mawkish. Yeah, it's t- there's still good stuff in it. Uh, Alfred like Molina it, is is great. Alfred Molina, Judy Dench, uh, Julia Benoit, like uh, the cast is is pretty yeah. stellar, and they all do good work in it. But even that is him. Like, I mean, you wouldn't know it from the cover art, which makes it look like the movie is about Julia Benoit and Johnny Depp. But he's yeah. not a huge part of the movie, right? Uh, in terms of screen time. Um, maybe I want him to. Maybe I just want him to p- do more supporting roles. Well, that's the thing is he's. Uh, sorry for the tangent, everybody. I mean, he's a character actor at heart mm-hmm. that has that has movie star looks, and that's and charisma. He and has ca- the charisma, no question about it. Although but like, I don't know that he does as much as I guess he thinks he does, or I like I. I think maybe he's gone to the well too often because I. Uh, we didn't talk about this in our review, but I don't find him very charismatic in Dark Shadows. And I actually, I find him committed, uh, and there's as much charisma as, any charisma that a character has, he will find it. Yeah. And he will That could be because it. of the screenplay and the construction of the film are yes. so inconsistent. I'm, that I'm willing to blame it on them and not yeah. him. You couldn't find an anchor in that character. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's, I wish that he would go back to just... It, if he was ever this, but I think he was like, you know, Edward Scissorhands, Ed Wood, uh, once upon a time in Mexico. <laughs> yeah. And that was the same year that, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, which, I mean, it's weird to think that like, that was such an, un- like he was nominated for best actor for that because we'd never seen st- something like that before. The idea right. that that character could be a lead in a movie played that way. And it's just like, it's astounding, but then, yeah, he went to the well so much. It's like, I've grown tired of one of the most interesting characters in the last 10 years. But is, this is such a tangent. Sorry, Is everybody. Jack Sparrow truly the lead of the first Pirates no, movie? No, he's not. Keira Knightley? Keira Knightley and Orlando Bloom are yeah, the leads. Yeah. And, yeah. And they're, they allow him to be yeah. as crazy as he can be. And that's, I think that's the key to it. But, um. Anyway. So we can move on. And, yeah, what uh, do we want to go, uh, I, uh. A Knight's Tale is probably something that I think people would write off. Okay. But it's a fun movie. I never saw it. And the music represents that. It's a, it's a, it's a smarter, slyer movie than people give it credit for. Well, it's Brian Helgeland, right? Yeah. 
and I think he's a smart writer, and I, he also directed it. I think, correct? I believe so. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I mean, he's a, he's a smart writer and director, and uh, you know, the big thing that I had heard about musically was the, the Queen songs, the yeah. Queen songs, and you know, yeah. But the, and I still is a rare movie, and it's not entirely successful, like like a lot of movies that has third act problems. But um, it does a thing that I think is very difficult, in that it's a period movie that has characters like. Um, uh, um, specifically like Paul Bettany and I think Alan Tudyk's characters in the film mm-hmm. that have a modern day sensibility to their sort of yeah. speech patterns and sense of humor. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a very difficult thing to pull off. I think uh, the majority of the time it seems like a uh, a cop-out on the part of the screenplay, mm-hmm. you know, to just... Uh, uh, is it's easier to write jokes in a modern way than to make someone funny in the an old fashioned way, the way that say Deadwood could be one of the funniest shows in the history of television and oh, still yeah. and still be uh true to its period. And I think uh, a Knight's Tale when it works, especially in that first hour or so, mm-hmm. it actually does that quite well. Okay. Uh I will move on okay, to yes. the man, uh, who, wasn't the man who wasn't there. Okay. So I got a lot to say about this, so I will uh Okay. Some personal and some uh, artistic. One thing that I really like about the general soundtrack of The Man Who Wasn't There is that there's a lot of Beethoven used in it, in the, in the film. But then there's also score. And it becomes very... When you listen to the whole soundtrack, score and uh, Beethoven, it becomes clear like, oh, this score is meant to fit in well with Beethoven. And it does. Uh, while still being undeniably a, a Carter Burwell original composition, the the instrumentation and the mentality of it um, is in, uh, influenced very directly by Beethoven. And so, like you know, Moonlight Sonata and the I think it's uh, I'm not I'm gonna mangle this. I'm sorry, the uh, Pathétique or something like that. Okay. Um, it's like those are beautiful, but then he has a theme that like the, the theme from, uh, the man who wasn't there is so sad. And I think he finds, you know, as hard boiled as a lot of film noir can be, there is an intense, pathetic sadness to it that somebody wants to better themselves. They want something more out of life. They do it the wrong way. And now they're being punished for it. Like, they just want more, which all, which we all want, but they're and they're sort of being punished for what we all want. And so there's a sadness, a as I said, a, a melancholy and mournful quality to it. So much so that, and this here's the personal thing, and maybe I'm sharing too much. I don't know. Um, when I uh, I had just purchased the soundtrack, and uh, maybe a, a week or two before uh, my father passed away. I flew home listening to that because I wanted something that kind of captured my fee- the way I was feeling. And so I was listening to it when my brother and I were driving around, uh, you know, just going from one place to another. Uh, and so we were listening to it in the car and the theme came up. And we found ourselves, without ever really saying anything, we just put that on repeat. Hmm. Uh, we just kept listening to that because it captured what we were feeling, just this, just a sadness, 
Um, and it just sort of, and it's, it's kind of weird and it is very like movie like, it's just like, uh, I need, I need underscoring that, <laughs> that understands how I feel. And so, um, so I do sort of associate this, this theme with how I was feeling at the time, but at the same time, like it's still a great theme and it's because it's so great and captures this, this sadness that we found ourselves listening to it over and over. Uh, so I do have a, an association with it, but it's, it's so wonderful and it fits in so well with the larger thing that they're trying to accomplish. So we will play that right now.
Okay. That was sad. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, All right, let's... Well, you... um, we're going to skip over a lot of movies, but I do want to... Well, I know you like his work with Spike Jones. Do you like the adaptation? There's either? not a lot of his stuff in there, but it is... Uh, it, it is uh, notable, and it does have uh, a playful quality to it, which I think the film itself has. Right. Um, I think adaptation is my least favorite of Spike Jones' films, but I still enjoy it. I, I know I like it more than you do. Yeah. Um, now, he did... The music for Intolerable Cruelty, which I don't remember, but if it's good, it'll be the only thing about that movie that's good. <laughs> I know you hate that movie, I really and I, I can't bring myself to hate it, even though I don't like it, just because I like the, I like the, uh, the double cross. It's done so mm-hmm. well that even though I recognize this isn't a thing that really happened, mm-hmm. I still admire the mind that ca- the minds that came up with that. Even though I know they're the ones manipulating the characters, it's just, it's like oh that's. You got me. Um, I appreciated that. Now for the uh, the Alamo, did he do the music that uh, that uh, Davy Crockett plays? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. He does all the music, and I was listening to it earlier, and I, I was I was debating whether or not we would uh, I would include it here, uh, and I opted not to. But that one, it's very it's very interesting because he uses completely different instrumentation than he usually does. There's still you still get a hint of Carter Burwell in there, but he uses like I don't know if this is true, but it it, it has a period feel, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and it's and he also incorporates uh, uh, a Mexican quality to it right, at times. Right. That's so good. This is a movie. This is John Hancock's uh, The Alamo. He also did The Rookie, um, and I think he went on to do The Blind Side. Yeah, let's not... Uh, well, again, I haven't seen it. Um, so this is the album of 2004, starring Dennis Quaid and... Um, uh, Bill Jason Thornton Patrick. And Jason and Patrick. I almost said Jason Isaacs. Thanks for saying Jason yeah. Patrick. Um, and I, I feel like it's a, it's a movie that uh, long-time listeners know you and I champion when, we're, yeah. when we get a chance. Because yeah. it's, it's really fantastic, and it just didn't get the notices that it deserved. Yeah, and I feel like it's general lack of grit, and I don't mean to put that in a in a negative way, but like it's a you know it's a violent film without being gory, mm-hmm. and there's no there's no real cynicism to the film. No, but there is an honesty about one of the things I found really sort of surprising from a Disney film. Um, the the Jason Patrick character, it's honest about the time in that he has a friendship with I guess his his slave yeah um who's like i I guess it's almost he's almost like a valet to him you know um and he's he's close to this this man yeah but he also treats him like property and it oh yeah the the film is actually very deft about that walking that line and showing the the complexities that you know it's it's easy to make movies about slavery i guess in which people who own slaves are just horrible because slavery is horrible but they were people too, and there are things about them that the, these slave owners that are uh, human. And Jason Patrick can be a hero of the Alamo, right. And have partaken in this horrible dehumanizing practice, and that 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 a Disney movie, frankly, captured that kind of complexity is really surprising and, and the, refreshing to me. And the complexity of the Davy Crockett character, yeah. which, by the way, Disney has a stake in playing up that uh, that myth. But as played by uh, uh, Billy Bob Thornton, like yeah. he's this guy who 
he has all these legends about him at the time and then he shows up at the alamo only to realize oh this is bad i don't want to be here yeah this is a guy uh david crockett all those legends have already happened at this point he's a senator yeah he's he's put that part of his life behind him yeah so when there's a there's a line when he says but the fighting's over right right remember that part and it's uh, it's like there's a there's a nervousness uh yeah almost timidity in his voice that you, that is uh, very telling and but you think that the film is going to almost paint him in a different light but it paints him in a real light yeah and he ends up being quite noble yeah and so but he has to he sort of almost has to rediscover that part of himself but i wonder if fantastic i wonder if if sorry for the tangent everybody we'll get back on track in a moment but like i wonder if people if like movie snobs like ourselves, I wonder if they don't like that movie because of its, its lack of condemnation, mm-hmm. you know, like, uh, Jim Bowie is, I believe the Jason yeah, Patrick yeah. character. And, uh, like the film doesn't condemn him. It condemns this practice, but it doesn't condemn him. Cause he's one of many people that engage in mm-hmm. this and it doesn't. And like, it could have been like a warts and all portrayal of Davy Crockett and like totally demythologizes him and makes him out to be kind of a son of a bitch or something like, or a coward or something, but it doesn't, it treats them as real and, but still heroic. And I feel like there's a, I think, uh, like I said, there's a lack of judgment, a lack of condemnation and a lack of cynicism and irony that I think is, uh, uh, anathema to uh people like us so anyway um, uh, anyway we recommend you check that out uh yeah and a re- really good score um or you mentioned you bill condon earlier yeah when you talk about gods and monsters and he- yeah he did kinsey as well and that uh i almost included that as well but you, you can't include everything yeah. um that score is that that one is kind of interesting because there's a there's a a methodical quality to it uh because it really, and it's a, you would totally believe that it is about a psychiatrist plumbing the depths of the human psyche, but doing it in a very scientific, methodical way. Mm-hmm. So there's a, quali- there's a quality to the score that's just like, all right, he's getting it done. He's, uh, well, in, in many ways, uh, but like he's, he's getting deeper and deeper into this subject, but this subject is at times quite lurid and it really does have, it's like the score of a scientist dealing with something that can at times be quite emotional for people and has a certain social stigmas and that, and that sort of thing. And so the score captures that quality mm-hmm. in a way that, uh, and you know what, I might be reading too much into it, but when you listen to all of his scores, you do notice the little differences. And the difference with Kinsey is that there's a, I'll just repeat it again. There's a methodical quality to it that I feel like because it deals with scientists, that has to have been on purpose. Um, okay. Uh, the hoax I saw and didn't like, so I don't remember it. No, in 2017, he did both No Country for Old Men and Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. Yeah. Uh, both of which are very good. The, no, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, is that a little jazzier? Am I... I, I you know what? I don't remember. I... Uh, I I could not find uh, the score. Uh, I don't own it, and so I couldn't find it uh, online. And my copy is lent out at the moment. Oh. So uh, my you copy of the film it. was yeah. lent out. Yeah, so. stuff lent people. Lend people I know. Stuff. Um, uh, in Bruges, I actually have still never seen. Oh boy! But I know it's something you wanted to play a clip from. Yes, uh, because this is a uh, with another director. So I wanted to. Uh, 
go with go with that. Um, yeah, it's uh, Martin McDonough, mm-hmm. and once again, you're dealing with uh, Irish characters, and so there there is a, a hint of that uh, in the score. But also, and this goes back again. I cannot think of a better uh, composer to play with melancholy and while in bruges is definitely a comedy it is a sad sad comedy in which a hitman has um accidentally killed a child mm-hmm. um and is now sort of on vacation while the his mob determines what they're going to do with him and he's dealing with the guilt of that and it is just overwhelming him and so and there's a definite theme to the in bruges score and it's there's just a real there's a longing uh, to the music in the midst of what is a, uh, quite a funny and profane comedy and incredibly violent as well. Um, and so, but it, it underscores the, and there's some, uh, there's some narration to the film and it's this character played wonderfully by, by, uh, Colin Farrell mm-hmm. who, uh, his character at times seems very, childish and simplistic but he's still able to feel the things that we all feel and so again the 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 score takes its cues from what he's feeling as opposed to what he's saying and so uh we'll play a clip a clip from that right now Sticking to 2008, mm-hmm. you, surprisingly to me, wanted to play a clip from Twilight, I which did. I have not seen. I saw the first one. I uh, watched it, yes, with a group of friends with the intent of making fun of it. And uh, mission accomplished. We did do that. <laughs> uh, it is not a very good film. But I did want to uh, – I wanted to play something from it because I think <laughs> – He's not a filmmaker, he's not a composer, excuse me, uh, that is limited by the film that he's scoring. Uh, And with Twilight, he does have, it's a great score, 
Um, and the story is, you know, it's very, it's melodramatic at times and, but he grounds it in a surprisingly nuanced theme and score that is, I mean, you're dealing with vampires and romance and like outliers. Uh, and so it does have, and it takes place in like the, the misty, uh, you know, misty mountains where it's always, you know, gray skies and uh-huh. pine trees and all that. It's a very Twin Peaks type uh, situation, but n- none of the quirkiness originality. Um, and so, uh, so there's a very drab quality to the existence that these uh, characters are living. Um, and so he captures that, that uh, morose quality while also having just a little, just a little sprinkling of piano. And it's in that little sprinkling that you find the theme of the film. And, uh, and so in the midst of, as, as the, uh, you know, the strings are setting this ominous mood, you'll get that little bit of piano in there. And, uh, and that almost, it almost hints at like the life, the life and vitality in these characters, even in the midst of them being vampires or them living in a really drab environment or whatever. And so, uh, so I thought that even in the midst of this completely mediocre film that is a joke to most film lovers, um, (laughs) he still manages to eke out a really good and memorable score. So we'll play that right now. Okay, we're going to end with one more clip. 
Yeah. Um, or, well, we'll, we we'll, won't end with the clip, but we'll have one more clip to play. Yeah. We will skip uh, A Serious Man, which I do uh, sadly because it's a wonderful score that uh, you haven't seen A Serious Man, right? Have, no. It's a really great movie. Uh, I didn't like it at first, but I, it has grown on me now that I've seen it probably two or three times. And uh, the, it has the most aggressively unpleasant trailer I've ever seen for any no movie. No question ever. about that. Uh, I mean, I guess they could have just had uh, two minutes of somebody screaming at you. <laughs> but not far behind that is the Serious Man uh, trailer. But, uh, and that's one where, again, much like Fargo, it's a small story. But the, but the, uh, the score is, it's not necessarily bombastic, but it's full of dread. Mm-hmm. And, which makes sense considering that it is sort of a modern day Job story that you know that things are always going to get worse. So, uh, uh, so we'll skip over that. Yeah. You, but you made, um, you made reference earlier to where the wild things are as being, yeah. uh, also, um, a bit of a tearjerker along with, uh, being John Malkovich. Well, yeah. Uh, and the film itself, of course. Yeah. Uh, and that one, that, that film has almost two different soundtracks. It's got the Karen O. Mm-hmm. Uh, I forget the Carano and something. I don't remember what it is, but um, where there's the songs and they're fun and playful, but then you have the score uh, and there's a definite theme and it's just, it's so because it is from the point of view of a kid. So there's a a fun and childlike and a sense of wonder to it, but also a sense of nostalgia and there's a wistful quality to it that is quite sad and uh, so we will um, that I think captures the spirit of the film completely because uh, the film is about among other things nostalgia and wishing for a, a more innocent time in your life and the, the score really has that quality to it so we will play that right now
right, that is from my favorite film of 2009. That's right. Spike Jones, Where the Wild Things Are, which I thought was 2010 until... Uh, I think you and I were talking about it off mic, and I could have sworn that movie came out in 2010. But Toy yeah. Story 3 was my favorite film of 2010. Oh, yeah. Huh. Good for you. Um, <laughs> so we'll, we'll skip over... Uh, well, I mean, we're, we're towards the end now. So yeah. I will say 2009, The Blind Side, maybe my least favorite of his scores. Okay. That I don't blame him. Clearly, the nature of that movie, it's supposed to be upbeat and fun and all that. And he, the, the general shittiness of the film... Uh, as it seeps its way into his score, which, and bravo for him for doing a score, being able to do a score like that. But I don't hear a lot of Carter Burwellisms in mm. there. Um, and maybe that's a good thing. I mean, some people will complain that a composer always sounds the same. Um, I think that can be an asset, provided you can still adapt and bring your style to different genres uh but i don't i don't hear a lot of that in the blind side and uh so Um, good for him for making a a, uh, composing a score that fits the tone of the film i just don't like the movie and the score is forgettable now um uh, like as i just said toy story 3 was my favorite film of 2010 your favorite film of 2010 was the kids are all right absolutely (laughs) no question about it Uh, what do you think of the score, though? I remember liking it. I remember the motorcycle scene. I think that was the scene. Yeah. I think you and I both yeah. had this fa- same favorite scene in the movie, even though you didn't like the film, and I thought oh, it was yeah. one of the best of the year. Um, uh, yeah, the motorcycle scene is it's yeah. beautiful. And I remember... It's, it, the, it's like that uh, the hot air balloon in Before Night Falls, a very beautiful moment that I remember even apart from the film. And I, I remember uh, the way that you described the film... I think I, I, I agree with you, but I would definitely apply it to the score, which is there's a joie de vivre that you will not uh-huh. often you won't often find in his in his scores, but uh, there is a, a real v- uh, vitality mm-hmm. and a vibrance to, to his score that is uh, embodied most by that sequence, um, and so that's that's a, a very good score, and that's an example of what I'm talking about. Like he's able to adapt his style very much for the movie that he's making. And even though I don't like kids are all right, it's a very different style than mm-hmm. his usual thing, but it's still great. And it's exactly what that movie needs to be. And it's a film that takes place in the sun and, uh, he doesn't usually score movies that take place in the sun. And, uh, and so, yeah, but it's a very good score and I liked it a lot. And also true grit was 2010. Yeah. And that's, uh, now you liked it more than I did, but, I uh, quite a bit. Yeah. And that score is good. It involves a lot of adaptation. Um, mm-hmm. He adapts a lot of like old uh, go- gospel songs and old hymns uh, into uh, a score, and so. Uh, but he does it well. Um, that's clearly what the Coen Brothers wanted. They wanted uh, you know to have an old time equality with songs that we probably already have an association with. And so he does that and adapts it into a workable movie score rather than just, all right, let's plug a song in. Uh, so it's a, and it's a very good soundtrack, uh, just in general. So, um, and then, yeah, I, that's all I've seen. I, I didn't realize he did the Mildred Pierce miniseries, but that would be reuniting him with Todd Haynes of Velvet Goldmine. Yeah. And I, and I haven't seen Mildred Pierce. I think I would enjoy it. And I have to assume given the nature of that being, just so melodramatic. Right. Uh, I do think that uh, it would be wonderful to listen to, but I didn't want to listen to it without seeing the film first. And then he returned to the Twilight Saga with Breaking Dawn Part yep. One, and that's uh, Bill Condon. So yes. Bill Condon brought him back 
Uh, that, that one already came out, right? Yes. But Breaking Dawn Part 2 has not come out yet? Right. Okay. And then, uh, so uh, he also did the score for the upcoming film Gangster Squad, which I'm not... There are certain elements to that film that look interesting to me, usually uh, as a function of the actors involved. But um, but I like the idea of him doing a, a score for a, a gangster film, uh, especially yeah. one that is that looks as kinetic as that one. Yeah, Ruben Fleischer has already fooled me twice by making movies that seem like something I want to see, and then I get in the theater and end up disappointed with them. I'm talking about Zombieland in 30 minutes or less. Uh, I still don't know why you hate Zombieland with, with every fiber of your being. <laughs> I, I wouldn't say that, but I, <laughs> uh, I do think it's um, uh, unforgivably lightweight and uh, has the same problem that I had uh, to a much greater extent with 30 Minutes or Less. It, it, I think it pulls its punches soft. Mm. Yeah, I could see that. And it sets up a pretty dark premise in both cases, mm-hmm. and the comedy in both cases does not come from the darkness in the way it should. It almost ignores the darkness a lot of the time. I did not see 30 Minutes or Less, but I do think... I, I enjoy Zombieland quite a bit, and I feel like there's plenty of other things that really delve into the darkness, but I do think that, though I enjoy watching it, watching it, I do think that uh, some of the comedy lessens the stakes a little yeah. bit, and suddenly yeah. I feel like uh, they're not in danger Especially, anymore. You've got that early scene of him in the his dorm room with uh, the girl that he's like yeah. been trying to get with, and then she turns into a zombie, yeah. and that scene is awesome. Oh, yeah. And that's what I wanted the movie to be. Yeah. Uh, because it is it is funny, but also scary and super tense. Yeah. And, uh, but, and, and, uh, but to bring it back, I, I'm cautiously, maybe not even optimistic, but I'll wait and see what the reviews are for, for Gangster Squad until, uh, to, to see it. Cause it could be, it looks like it could be a lot of fun, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I'm intrigued to see what the what the score will be for that. I bet I have a feeling it'll actually be pretty good, um, yeah. and not just because I'm a huge fan of Carter Burwell. He is my favorite composer um, because he just manages to capture a certain mood so well. And uh, so, yeah, I hope you enjoyed the clips. Uh, many of these are available on iTunes if you wanted to go and uh, purchase uh, the whole score. Uh, many of them, some. Uh, the 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 danger with like buying scores is that sometimes you'll get a track that is so clearly meant to go with a specific piece of footage uh-huh. that you'll be like, oh, oh okay, my li- this doesn't really fit in with what I with me washing the dishes, yeah. um, or maybe it does and your life becomes much more epic and, and uh, dangerous. But uh, but his but his scores. I, like I need to interrogate these. Dishes <laughs> but uh, but his scores often. Music. His scores often uh, can just be played, not necessarily in the background, but they can be played like while you're driving late at night, which is uh, which I often am. And they really uh, with gas with gas prices being what they are, you still. Do you if still I drive down to say Comic Con at two a.m. Oh, I see. You know, but you don't take late night drives just for the hell of it. Yeah. No. Okay. No. That was something I used to do, like in high school. Oh yeah, when back I- when gas prices were like a buck. Yeah. <laughs> Politics, everybody. Am I right? So, um, okay, so hopefully everybody uh, enjoyed this. Yes. Uh, I will say the next episode is going to be very similar to this. We will be playing musical clips. Yeah, it will also probably be longer. Uh, um, yes, probably. So I, get, I better get some rest. Um, you can find us at battleshippretension.com where there's always uh, movie reviews um, and other 
uh, fun things to click on and read. Um, and it, there are videos as well. Um, our video series is still going and still depends on your views. So please watch it. Tell your friends to watch it. Tell strangers on the street to watch it. Uh, you can email us at david at com or tyler at com. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash thepretension or find Tyler on Twitter at twitter.com slash morelessons, which is the official Twitter of his other podcast, More Than One Lesson, which you can find at morethanonelesson.com. And my other podcast is the weekly television review show Previously On, which you can find at previouslyonshow.com. Uh, it just occurred to me, uh, I so seldom put out a new episode of More Than One Lesson that uh, I forget that I just have. <laughs> uh, and so the, the most recent episode is about Sean Penn's Into the Wild, which is a surprisingly divisive film. Some people love it, some people hate it. Uh, I'm not sure if I'd say I love it, but I like it a lot, and my co-host Josh does not, so uh, you can yeah. listen to that. I don't think I would say I hate it, but I don't like it very much. Yeah. And so, um, so you can go and listen to that. We compare it to uh, Wes Anderson's Rushmore. Speaking of scores... I do not like. I, I would say maybe I even hate Eddie Vedder's "Into the Wild" score. I actually like it, and it's it's Michael yeah. Brook who does the score. The songs are done by Eddie. Vedder. Oh, okay. Well, then I hate the Eddie Vedder songs. Oh, okay. I'm sure the score is fine. Yeah, it it, it fits. Yeah, but uh, and I I I, I recently uh, rewatched it, and I thought uh, I, I I liked the music for the most part. It didn't take me out of it like I thought, like I remembered it doing. So yeah. maybe it's different this time. But uh, anyway, so. Uh, just wanted to throw that out there. If you want to listen to me and Josh talk about Into the Wild, you can go to more yeah. than one lesson. And what is the what is the companion film? Rushmore. Rushmore. That's that's right. So. That's right. Uh, yeah, that's got good music. It does. Um, Mark Mothersbaugh. Yep. Yeah. All right. So uh, sorry thank for burping into the mic just now. That's my cue to get out of here. <laughs> thank you for listening, and we'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.